Hi, this is Frank. First off, I want to thank you for listening to Unhedged, and I want to apologize in advance for the audio quality of the segment you're about to hear. This was done using some prior equipment, which we've since then updated, but I did feel that the subject matter was important enough, and I have an incredibly high opinion of anything that Doug has to say, whether or not I agree or disagree with him, that I thought it important you hear it. So bear with us for the two segments, but again, as we move forward, the audio quality should improve, and we will always consistently have guests as strong as Doug on the show. Thank you again for being a listener. Hello, and welcome to Unhedged, a candid discussion of markets and mechanisms. I am your host, Frank Trois, a 25-year-plus veteran of the markets, both bull and bear. Joining me on the show are market participants ranging from hedge funds to fintech, and as diverse and eclectic a group as winemakers and priests. All of us, like you, asking the same question we all do when we turn on the TV nowadays. Why? Unhedged is a weekly podcast, and on occasion a bi-weekly podcast, based on the subject matter. You can subscribe to Unhedged through iTunes. As always, your feedback is appreciated, both good and bad. So let's get started. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Hello, and welcome back to Unhedged. Today's guest is Douglas Borthwick, one of the market's leading currency and macroeconomic strategists. Doug, great to have you. And just to pick up where we left off, I think we'd be remiss in in, uh, what we were talking about previously with California as a separate state and country. And again, you can make fun of me. I spent the the better part of 15 years there. Um, Let's use that as a segue to, to, to the administration, talk of impeachment, all the optics around this. And, and I'm going to give you a, a, a comparison that I'd like to use, which I think is President Clinton. When you look at the total, and pardon my French, when you look at the total shit show that he went through as president, and yet at the same time, because you, you alluded to Lloyd Benson earlier, what he actually achieved economically, it's interesting. You could ignore his own impeachment, Monica Lewinsky, Ken Starr, and, and I think history will look favorably on Clinton. The irony here now with Trump is, is, is he, in, in, from a historical perspective, is this impeachment, you know, A, what's the probability of this impeachment? And B, five, ten years out, are we even going to care about this? Well, first of all, well, I, think of all I think that impeachment, impeachment is really something, is really something that's, being, that's pushed being pushed by, by obviously the Democrats, but no one else. And uh, the, the thought of someone being impeached, well, first, when folks talked about him being impeached, they talked about impeaching him because of collusion with the Russians. Now, the collusion with the Russian story has pretty much disappeared. And now folks are saying, well, let's get him on something else. Maybe it's business dealings prior to becoming president or what have you. And yet, you know, Clinton, what happened there happened literally in the Oval Office and in the White House. And so that was during his term after he'd been elected in. 
I think when, when Trump was elected in, everyone knew he had warts. You know, he was elected in warts and all. Yeah. And that was certainly not just by, you know, regular folks that are Republicans, but also by evangelists. Now, why was he, why was, why did, why did the evangelists, you know, support Trump? Well, that's quite simple. It's because he's allowed to go out there and bring every single federal judge or as many as he can to becoming Republican judges. Yeah. And you know, the number of judges, whether they're on the Supreme Court or whether on the federal court, that are moving on the Republican, that are being appointed, that are Republican, is absolutely staggering. And so, certainly, you know, he, he's he's lining the courts with Republican judges, which is what the evangelists have wanted for quite some time. And he, so he continues to get the support of the people. And when you bring up and and you say, well, ten years ago he did this, he was dodgy with his tax dealings, or he did something with his real estate. That most of American public doesn't care because they say, well, we already knew that when he ran. And so it's almost like we keep switching. The narrative is constantly switched about why or how he should be impeached. And I think that you know most of most of the U.S. while they'll they'll show a distaste for for what he's doing, they don't really find it to be impeachable offense. Well, you know, to your point, it was like, there was a, a lot of commentary I, I, again when you step back. And go to 50,000 feet. But here you had Senator McConnell, where on the one hand, folks going to him saying, how in the world are you dealing with this insanity? You know, the idea that Ryan as speaker was resigning because he was embarrassed and ashamed of where he was in this. But at the same time, from a, you know, back to kind of the real politic, pragmatic point that you're making, you know, there, there are other folks who said McConnell to your point, did exactly what the conservative base wanted, which is, you know, it, almost in effect, like, hey, we can sacrifice the House if that allows us to 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 get two new judges on the Supreme Court. They may even, in fact, get a third, you know, with with Ginsburg's health condition uh, as where it is. And and there was I forget where I think it was in the Post or something where they, they McConnell even said that in the context of Kavanaugh's confirmation that that was part of the political calculus that they were willing to to lose the House. If in fact they could get those judges, and and the premise being that you know Kavanaugh would be on the court for the next thirty years, Trump Trump is just a statistical four year anomaly. Yeah, for sure, uh, for sure. That for ab- you're absolutely correct. That's definitely the mentality right now. Yes, you know, so I think with that, if 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 now that they have that, what do you think the calculus is for for McConnell, given that? You know, so let, let's just assume for a second the impeachment's just going to be fun optics. We can watch it on TV because the reality is the House will impeach him. It'll go to the Senate. The Senate will say no. Uh, you'll have guys like Romney around the edges, you know, uh, you know, using this as an excuse to try to position for 2020. But going back to to what you and I look at day to day, what what does this truly mean for the global markets? I mean, is it, is this even relevant to the discussion for folks and 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 or Let's say Trump is even impeached and Pence is sitting in the chair. Does, does any of this matter for the markets? Well, I think that Pence being number two is one of the biggest reasons why Trump won't be impeached. You know, if you think that Trump's um, a little bit right of uh, center, you know, Pence is even even more right than than, than Trump. And uh, if there's one thing that the liberal side of the U.S. is probably more afraid of, it's actually a President uh, Pence as opposed to President Trump. The whole mm-hmm. impeachment discussion, I think that you know, while we can discuss it, I think that the app, it's maybe a five or 10% delta that it would actually, something like that would happen. It makes for great optics to file papers to call for impeachment. And, you know, lots of Democratic, Democratic congressmen will go out there and do that, I'm sure. But the reality is it's just not going to pass. Yeah. And I almost get the sense that it's not, it's not really relevant. I don't see it as maybe like a 
one or two day tradable event based on, you know, volatility or whatever. But, but to your point, I don't see, um, you know, like what, what I do think is interesting though, and actually to use this as a cynical segue is, is, you know, going back to, you know, if we look at Trump and say, okay, outside of his rhetoric, he's effectively irrelevant. Then you go to, you know, Nuchin as uh, as treasury secretary, and I'm still shaking my head at this conference call he did, one, which was not required. He, did, he didn't need to do it. Two, the fact that he felt the need to communicate to the market that, that he did do this call. And then three, the, the, the premise being that he thought it important to tell the markets overtly that the, the system had ample liquidity. And, yeah. you know, which, and again, it begs the question, does he, A, does he just absolutely not know what he's doing? Or, or B, was this function of liquidity actually more of a concern than, than people were really talking about? Well, I think that obviously it's created more concern than it should have, and obviously he shouldn't have done it in the first place. I mean, it, it, it really confounds the mind that he actually did it, and I'm wondering whether he did it just to make sure the pipes were clear that he could actually go out there and make the conference calls and, and talk to the folks and get them all in one room together or, or on one call together. Um, it boggles the mind as to why he did it. I can't imagine why there's any thoughts of a liquidity event. Remember, the equity markets are still up, what, 25% since Trump got in? So sure, we look at, you know, over the past year, we're down X, Y, and Z. But the reality is the market's still up considerably from when Trump got in. And so I, mean, I, I don't see any reason why Mnuchin went out there and got the market all anxious. For sure, I'm one of the guys that thought immediately that Mnuchin would be the next guy in the chopping block on the back yeah. of that because it's embarrassing. But really, I think that it's not necessarily embarrassing because it means that there's someone that was willing to kind of take a lead and just make sure that the pipes were open. And I prefer to look at it that way, that maybe he was looking to make sure the pipes of communications were open um, as opposed to him going out there and saying, oh, my God, we could have a liquidity event. I mean, there are some banks that, that seem to be in trouble these days. You know, Deutsche Bank would certainly be one of them. Um, but I don't think that anyone's worried about liquidity events in the U.S. Yeah, and I think I think to your point, all the stuff on Deutsche has been priced in. I mean, that 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 there's nothing new there. It's just it's well, it's ugly. Every, every time we think it's priced in, it goes down another five percent. That's true. That's true. And and then and, uh, uh, and, and, and on the Mnuchin, Mnuchin side, and again, I always mispronounce his name. If we if we look at going back to your earlier point in terms of mouthpiecing this, do you think this was something where Trump just said to him, "Hey"? You know, was, was that a brainstorm that he had in the Oval Office with Mnuchin to do? Or do you think Mnuchin just did this on his own as a way to curry favor with, with Trump? Uh, I, I think it's very hard to do something on your own to curry favor. I think there was probably a slight offhand remark at Mar-a-Lago or something like this, where he said, like, the markets might open a little bit choppy. And maybe Trump turned around and said, you know what, just do what you can do to, to make people relax or, or to, to make sure that it's not too bad and open. And so he did that, hoping to calm the markets. But, you know, what he did was he took a playbook that you take maybe in the the third quarter as opposed to something you do at the kickoff. Yeah. And again, the comment on ample liquidity, as one guy said, that's almost like if, uh, you know, your, your spouse turns to you and out of nowhere says, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm not cheating on you. And then later you're like, you know, why, why did you even bring that up? I, that wasn't even something I was thinking about 20 minutes ago. Or it's, it's, it's like opening the football game with a Hail Mary pass. Yeah, exactly. Right. And you still got four quarters. Yeah. Yeah. Makes no sense at all. Right. Well, let's, let's uh, you know, on, on the stuff that he should be focused on and, and let, let's go cross the pond back into the Pacific. So again, to talk out of both sides of my mouth. So on the one hand, 
You have a cadre of folks saying, why the heck is the administration picking this fight with China? It's obviously causing a lot of risk in the system. China now is going through a slowdown. Apple just announced a step back in iPhone sales, et cetera, et cetera. Then you go to the other side, and there's a cadre of folks who say, look, China's been stealing my IP forever. There's been a series of issues and infractions that have been causing us problems. Um, you know, do you, I, I could envision one of the data points coming into the market this year in 2019 is that China's, you know, I think we've gotten acknowledgement from them on the IP side. Uh, but I also, I don't think it's unreal that, that, or unrealistic, I should say, that we could get some resolution on the trade side vis-a-vis these tariffs. Well, for sure, solving the trade issue would be phenomenal for Trump and that the market would have a tremendous rally. And the market's rather anxious about this right now. Now, tech titans like Cook at, at Apple will talk about, in public, they'll talk about how, well, we're having trouble with our sales in China. But in public, they won't talk about the trouble they're having with Chinese companies stealing their IP because no titan in the software world or the hardware world wants to be seen as being bad-mouthing China in public. So I'm quite sure there's a lot of Oval Office meetings where tech titans go in there and say, Trump, you know, these guys are just copying everything we're doing. Do whatever you can. And if Apple has to take a hit for this quarter and maybe lose 10, 20 percent of its market value, so be it. Because what they need to do is they need to make sure the IP remains the IP for Apple. And I think that there are many, many tech companies and, and, and it, uh, that are pushing for this, uh, this resolution with, with China. And certainly while China may give lip service, until they actually you know, enforce it, it's, it's, it's going to be a big issue for, for, for China and Trump can stay with it. And Trump can stay with it because it's one thing I think that, that California uh, folks actually are behind him on in that I think there's a lot of folks in California that don't want to create something, build it in China, then have the IP stolen immediately. Yeah, I mean, and to your point, they've they've got to be careful. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. That that's something where the optics are huge. Where again, using Cook as a as a straw man. I mean, he has a, a whole part of their supply chain is sitting right there. The last thing he's going to want to do is upset that. That's right. And and at the same time, he needs somebody else to be the bully. And well, one of the other, and I'd be curious as your thoughts on this. One of the, one of the other points that um, uh, one analyst shared that I thought was interesting was that you know here we are we're, we're now again I think James Mattis is terrific so let me preface it by saying that but on the other hand you know if we look at it through through a simplistic frame that maybe the Oval Office was thinking about you know one analyst made the point he said well look Trump Trump's looking at the Middle East is just completely dilutive to the conversation we really need to be having back in Asia and he said and the irony of this is that as as cynical as Trump is regarding Clinton and and Obama in regard to a Pacific you know orientation in terms of foreign policy and strategy he's like here he is the guy's pulling out of Afghanistan and Syria which to, you know even now Americans still really don't understand why we're there and you could argue that you know that does make sense shift resources shift the fleets bring everything you know get the 7th fleet back again there by the South China Sea Islands with, with China and keep stepping on the neck of China from a resource perspective. So, you know, his view was Trump actually is consistent in doing that. And to your point, you know, it, it, you know, now, now we're 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 utilizing the two levers we have, both diplomatically and militarily, to say, hey, we we need these concessions, and, we, and we're being serious now about this. Right. Well, on Syria, one of one of the uh, campaign resolutions that Trump had was to bring the boys home, and I think that most Americans probably didn't know we had troops on the ground in Syria. And while Democrats are very upset about us bringing these folks home, 
I think if you look at past congressional sessions, they all complained when the troops were sent out there in the first place. So I think that you know, obviously the Middle East strategy for Trump is, look, there's enough big boys out there fighting. Why do we even have to be involved? You know, I think he looks at the Romans and he looks at the British and says, the more you spread out your troops, the weaker you become in the end. And uh, certainly I do think he's got a large pivot towards Asia, not in terms of, of uh, a you know, military fight, but certainly in terms of an economic fight. And in the economic fight, maybe the best guys to be around aren't the generals that have been used to military fighting. Maybe it's uh, best he has tech guys around that know how to, how to deal with, you know, espionage and other e-tech type things and the stealing of IP. So there, there is a war, but it just, it just takes different types of generals to fight this war. And, and Doug, you know, what, what I want to do is let, let's bring it back full, full circle to, to where we started on the first segment. And let, let's bring it back to energy, oil, China, and Russia. So, so to your point, I think at the end of the day, and feel free to, to, to counter this, but I think at the end of the day, Xi is looking, I think us telling China, you've been stealing the IP and it has to stop. I don't think that's news to him. I think he knows that they've been stealing it. And I think he knows that some, at least some form of a compromise needs to be made. Let's assume for a second that that resolution in some way, shape or form is acknowledged and, and booked. At the same time, you have OPEC uh, effectively now slowly disintegrating as, as it relates to what's happening with energy. And the question I would have for you, and, and maybe to use this as a, to give you the floor, how would you wrap this up for the macro guys that are looking at the market now? Because you've talked a lot about the dollar as a reserve currency. We're now looking at a changing paradigm as it relates to energy. And the, you know, and again, the, the, the fact that the dollar, you know, is used as the currency for the majority of these payments where do you see this playing out? And let, let's go with the lead of something will happen on trade. The U.S. and China will become friends again. What does that mean for the dollar? What does that mean for energy? And then what does that mean for the other actor who we haven't talked about today, which is Russia, uh, given you know where they stand at the party? And, and what, what systemic risk could they introduce? Right. There's, there's a lot of things to, to cover here. I think that, that, that obviously Trump did uh, Saudi Arabia – um, a solid by, by not immediately going out there and implicating Saudi Arabia for the death of Khashoggi. And on the back of that, I believe that Saudi Arabia feels like they sort of owe him one. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see these huge equity moves that we've seen in the past few weeks was a sovereign buyer out of the Middle East that was helping to prop up U.S. equities sort of as a, hey, you know, we appreciate what you, what you did there. That, that, that is one thing. Secondly, Saudi Arabia has in their budget oil at $75 per barrel, and we're trading around 50 It seems to me that if oil doesn't start to move up higher quicker, then there could be more destabilization out there in the Middle East. That's not so good. Thirdly, China's been very, very aggressive in going out there and signing up fuel contracts where they want to start receiving fuel from countries like Saudi Arabia and elsewhere, and they want to, instead of being paid, or they don't want to pay in dollars, they want to pay, pay in Chinese renminbi. They also now have the ability where you can trade futures in fuel now in China that are based in renminbi as well. So China's going around trying to make a lot of trade deals. And instead of having to go through the dollar, they want people to start paying them in, in the Chinese renminbi. Now, that goes along with sort of rule Britannia, Britannia rule the waves. When Britain ran the Navy and Britain ran trade, it said pays in sterling. When the U.S. ran trade, they say pays in dollars. And now China's going out there and saying, well, look, we want to be paid in renminbi. It's really quite simple. Now, what that means is the U.S. as a dollar reserve currency will obviously start to fall off as it's less needed to pay for your debt. 
reserve managers look at who are our trading partners. We'll sort of keep our, our, our currency reserve management in terms of who our trading partners are, where the U.S. has traditionally been 60 percent. The U.S. now is losing influence in Latin America. China's doing more trade with a lot of Latin American countries. They're losing influence in Asia. China's doing more trade with Asian countries. Excuse me, and the same in Africa. That being the case, these guys maybe don't need the dollar anymore. Maybe China starts saying pays and renminbi. So everything's related there. Where does Russia come in? Russia also wants a higher um, fuel rate. And even though Trump says higher oil isn't good for America, it's not good for the consumer that's out there filling their gas tank with oil. But certainly it's good for all of Texas right now that's sitting there with fracking that needs a $50 price for them to make money. And so you know, higher oil prices, I think, is where the market wants to go. Higher oil prices would also happen if you had a weaker dollar. Remember, a weaker dollar pushes up commodity prices. So you'd see oil start to spike higher. You'd see copper start to go higher. And so I think that Russia wants probably a weaker dollar right now because that would mean obviously a stronger you know, Russia, ruble. I think the U.S. wants a weaker dollar right now. I think that China is ambivalent, but they'll go along with the weaker dollar, stronger Chinese currency just because why not? People talk about China having a huge problem when it comes down to raising money because they have so much debt outstanding already. Remember, just given the percentage of, of Drimnimbi in people's portfolios and reserve managers' portfolios, the size of the Chinese debt market is absolutely tiny or a fraction of this is debt as in sovereign debt. As a fraction mm -hmm. of where reserves have to be, it's a tiny fraction, which is why last year one of the only sovereign debt markets to make money was Chinese debt market, sovereign debt market. Okay. Because the demand is far outstripping the, the, the supply. So China, they'll say, you know what? Yep, sure, we'll have a stronger currency. And then what we'll do is we'll issue much, much more sovereign debt and we'll get our money that way. And so I think that, that everything sort of moves around together. But I think what the market really wants or the easy way for the market to get out of all of the situations we feel are cramming down on us right now is for there to be a weaker dollar. And the only way that Trump can do that is right now by going out there and jawboning, which is what he does. So I think that you're yeah, looking forward to some more jawboning. Well, on that note, and in, uh, in the spirit of giving our listeners something to chew on uh, as we wait, you know, not only for this non-farm, but uh, we, we'd love to have you back again on the next non-farm. What would you say? And I'll lead with my chin here. So I would say for the next four weeks outside of a play on vol, I would be reticent to go short or long. And I would be a kind of a hide the money in the mattress Again, barring just a pure volatility trade. What, what would you recommend to folks as like the theme they should be thinking about the next four weeks? Well, in Latin America, you've got a new uh, prime minister, you've got a new president that's come in. I think it's going to be very good for the Brazilian market. And uh, yeah, I think the Brazilian construction companies could be very interesting, just given the fact that I think there's going to be a lot of infrastructure trading. I think in the U.S., infrastructure could become a big thing because it may be the only thing that, that Trump can push, given the uh, democratically uh, held Congress. If he's pushing for a wall and Democrats are saying no, and then he's pushing for infrastructure, Democrats say no, then I think that he'll win 2020 because the market voters will turn around and say Democrats are just stopping the moving forward of the U.S. I mean, really asking for $5 billion, the Democrats saying no to that when they voted $25 billion three years ago for border security is, is just – it shows that they're being uh, – rather uh, childish. And I think that in the end, Trump will win with the the, the border funding uh, issue. And that is going to see the market start to move higher. Um, but I think that the thing that will really push the market higher, and that's really in Trump's pocket, is uh, a trade deal with China. I think that's not going to happen in the next, next three weeks, but I think it will happen in the next three months. 
So can I, we would be able to say maybe short-term, you and I agree that, a lack of a better word, defensive posture in light of some political noise coming out, but at the same time, we could have that X factor where out of nowhere in the next three, six, eight weeks, we could see something come out of China and, and a massive rally in the market as a function of that. I think there's a lot more bad news price into this market than good news. In other words, mm-hmm. I'd much rather be a buyer than a seller, and I would probably be 50-50 cash in the sidelines and in the market at these levels. Done. Well, on that note, Mr. Borthwick, again, always a pleasure. Happy New Year to you and your family. And uh, again, we'll look forward to seeing you on the other side next month with the non-farm number. And thank you again for today. You got it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Frank. And that'll do it for this week's segment of Unhedged. As always, thank you for tuning in. And we'll look forward to talking and speaking next time. Take care.